So, Bob, I thought we would look at Google News and look at the psychology and counseling uh, articles that are being published recently and maybe have some of that interesting yet light banter that we are able to produce uh, so that the listeners can enjoy it. What do you say? That sounds good to me. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am your old friend from graduate school, a therapist in practice here in Seattle as well. Mm -hmm. We have been friends for 23 years. Yeah. And... uh, We're coming up on our anniversary. We are. Yeah. Uh, It would have been like October 2 or something. Um, Or did we meet at orientation? Was there? No, no. We met at ProSem first night. Yeah. And uh, you cut your own hair and... Um, I think for our anniversary, you ought to take me out for a beer at the Sit and Spin, if it's still there. <laughs> it is not. Oh, well, well. Um, but the uh, Lava Lounge is still oh, there. Lava Lounge! Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we should. October October 1-ish, uh, yeah. 23. I wonder what kind of anniversary that is, like ceramic. Oh, what you get for... Uh, yeah, no, I think it's like a Bullets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so this first article... That I found. So, by the way, I just I just Google searched Google News of uh, counseling and of psychology, and all of these are the first say fifteen hits that I got. Oh, okay, the, great. These aren't like these are just randomized. You know, the first most popular things to, today. So this first one uh, published in Eureka Alert, Eureka Alert, Eureka Alert, the global source for science news. Um, this uh, article is titled, People Love to Hate on Do-Gooders, Especially at Work. People love to hate on do-gooders, especially at work. And the opening sentence, Sometimes it doesn't pay to be a do-gooder, according to a new University of Gelth study. What do you think about that, Bob? Where's Gelth? I don't know. Somewhere far away. Yeah. Um, but what do you think about that? I don't know. It doesn't sound right to me. I mean, I mean, nobody likes a brown noser. Yeah. Maybe it means that. Um, well, why would we hate brown nosers? Uh, because we think they're disingenuous. Because they're not telling the truth. Yeah. They're manipulative. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, that one. But that's not a do-gooder. No. That, I mean, a do-gooder, what do, you, what do you think the definition of a do-gooder is? I don't know. A, a brown noser is a look-gooder, not yeah. a do-gooder. Do-gooder, it seems to me, is someone who actually is proactive. Yeah. And pro-social. And pro-social. Yeah. Someone who does their job well. Yeah. yeah. And is a good person. Yeah. Has a sincere maybe belief in, um, you know, adding something, contributing or helping out or whatever it is. Right. So this plays into an internet notion that the nice guy always loses. Oh. There's this thing in the manosphere where they'll say, nice guys are are always in the friend zone. There's like uh-huh. tons of, you're not on the internet as much as I am, but uh-huh. you know, you can tell the contempt I have for, for this cultural group. It's, you know, it's like this notion that you have to be the asshole to get the babe. Yeah. Only the assholes, babe, you know, bag the babes. Right. Um, Is that out of that pickup culture? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all the same kind of thing. So just to... So as soon as I read this, I was like rolling my eyes. Similar, yeah. to, you, you were only rolling your eyes, kind of a little. Yeah, I was. I was like, oh boy, here it comes. And so, so here, let me just read this part here, and, and tell me, you know, if you think 
because you know maybe they can redeem themselves in the actual article. The study found that cooperative behavior attracted punishment most often in groups whose members compete with each other. Oh, right. This was even the case when punishing or derogating, derogating? I think that means insulting. Like derogatory? Yeah. Uh, punishing or derogating the do-gooder lessened benefits for the entire group, including the punisher. This was even the case when punishing or derogating the do-gooder lessened benefits for the entire group, including the punisher. I don't even know what that means. Do you know what that means? Yeah, I think it means that um, people will will um, punish a do-gooder even if they suffer before it. Okay. Yeah. However, without competition, cooperation increased, the study said. Yeah. Um, being suspicious, jealous, or hostile toward those who seem better or nicer or holier than us appears to run deep in the psychological makeup of humans, Barclay said. So I just want to say that again. So this follows up. That, so I'll just tell my thesis as we go here. So right. the only good parts of this entire article are the part that I just read. You know, you know, cooperative behavior attracted punishment most often in groups whose members compete with each other. Uh, however, without competition, cooperation increased, the right. study found. Yeah. Which this makes sense, given what I understand about human nature and empirical science, is that when you have a culture or a, a organization or a leadership who promotes competition among its members, uh, which it's not, it's not just competition, it's this either implied or very real threat that if you don't beat your coworker, you will be fired or you won't be given the raise or you won't be given the benefits of this and that. And so, so you're, you're, you're put in a situation where you're, um, uh, it's similar to sibling rivalries. Whenever I hear about intense sibling rivalries, um, I always have found that the, the cause isn't that the siblings are dicks. It's the cause is that the parents didn't give the kids enough love or the uh -huh. society was such, you know, they were running from war or something. And what happened was the kids felt uh, uh, thirsty and um, deserving of more attention and love. Right. And the little bit that their parents had to give the family, they saw some of that going to their siblings. You know, it'd be similar right. as if you're literally starving from food and there's one cracker to be distributed among six siblings. Well, you know, there's a chance that you're going to look at those six, uh, you know, your five siblings and say, like, I wish all of them were dead so I could get the whole cracker right. because my survival depends on it. Right. So that makes sense to me. But the re But then... There's this quick, just complete disregard of, uh, so essentially when I read this, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's not that the do-gooder is, uh, it's not that we evolved to hate do-gooders right. or that do-gooders get punished. It's that when you have a culture of competition and of scarcity, then everyone suffers and, and do-gooders are one of those people who get targeted, you know, because right. they're winning and everyone's jealous. Yeah. And envious, okay. Maybe the perception of a do-gooder is, is that they have enough and so have the capacity to give a little bit more. Yeah. And so, of course, they're targeted. Right. But it could be 500 other factors that would target people in a competition, a culture of competition. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's um, why we hate the New England Patriots. Uh, it's why... Right. I hate Penn State for beating us last year. <laughs> um, you know, uh, if Penn State was like... 
<laughs> Midland of the pack, or if or if uh, New England was hadn't made the playoffs in ten years, either I wouldn't have an opinion about the Patriots, or I might even like prefer them. Yeah, because I would feel bad for them being an underdog. You know, when Philly beat New England, uh, people cheered all over the world. Oh yeah, I mean it was a glorious moment. Yeah, and. Not because people are in love with the Philadelphia Eagles. Well, they should be, but... <laughs> it's because they hate the Patriots for, for winning, what, five or six Super Bowls in the last 10 years or right. something? It's insane. Yeah. And uh, there's never been... A, 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 and, you know, the perfect quarterback with the perfect wife and the perfect kids and the perfect diet and the perfect lifestyle, you know, it's just like you just want to strangle them, but... You know, it's it's exactly what this is. There's a competition. Only one team gets the ring. Right. And every other city has to suffer, in, you know, Seattle included. You know, I mean, like right. our most, the worst moment in, uh, worst best moment in Seattle sports history was right. uh, not giving it to goddamn Lynch. Right. Um, I mean, what? We're, oh. I mean, I get it. All the mathematicians and statistics people are like, well, it was, it was second down. They had plenty of time. Uh, you know, you got to go with your options. And, you know, statistically, that was a yeah, – fuck you. Give it to Lynch. <laughs> You're on the second yard line. You have the most powerful, most talented running back, one of the most powerful running backs who's ever lived. Well, I mean, they got like Bettis and like, you know, who else could really compete with Lynch, you know? And he was like, you know, arguably on the downslide, but definitely on the crest of his career. This episode is just me just railing about. Um, it's actually you supporting the article by, by behavior. <laughs> right, exactly. Because of competition, I'm being a jerk. Uh, but if, it was, if, if there was no Super Bowl and it was just like, everyone wins then right. no one would care to yeah. no one would care enough to hate right um it's the same way where i i hate the quarterback of usc i can't remember his name but um he his usc beat, beat uw last year and and um and me and my friends just hated this guy he just sure. looks like a jerk too and we're so happy because he got drafted in the nfl early i think or at least he graduated or something and it's just like yay you know we don't have to face him anymore <laughs> but anyway so the rest of this article says, so they go from there with like, okay, culture creates competition, which right. creates hatred of people who do good at work. Right. Then they go on to say, being suspicious, jealous, or hostile towards those who seem better or nicer or holier than us appears to run deep in the psychological makeup of humans. It's like, how, is, how does it run deep in the psychological makeup of humans when it comes from the outside of the culture? Okay. Because, like they said, without competition, cooperation increases. So one would actually conclude, oh, cooperation runs deep, and hostility towards do-gooders actually comes from society and the way that you set up your, your, your society. Right. Um, here's a quote. What we are looking for in this research is, what are the psychological mechanisms that play into this? Why are people built in such a way that they will react against the overly generous person and want to bring down the person who appears to who appears to be doing good. Anthropological evidence from egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies suggests a similar social phenomenon prevented excellent hunters from dominating the group. What? So this is just classic crappy science and science reporting where 
it, it, I don't know if it's the, if it's the writers or the audience, but everyone loves a good evolutionary psychology argument. Everyone loves a good, like back on the Serengeti, you know, it's like, so it, it took like two sentences to get to, uh, the Serengeti, you know, uh, the Pleistocene. Uh, and it's like, uh, evidence shows that, uh, egalitarian hunter gatherer societies, um, uh, suggest a similar social phenomenon that prevented excellent hunters from dominating the group. You know, like, how do you know that? Yeah. Like, did you, do you have a time machine? Like, you're, you're probably, I mean, one, just so many dumb things about this. Two, <laughs> hunter-gatherer societies, according to actual experts who study hunter-gatherer societies, because they still exist today, yeah. or at least, you know, in that direction, um, have found wide variety of cultures, behaviors, social mores, psychological uh, phenomenon that exists. As well they're, they're not a uniform thing. Right. You know, that's our thought is like, uh, oh, they're all tribal. They, they all act the same. It's right. like, nope. Some are, have women in control. Some have men in control. Some are, you know, polyamorous and some are very, you know, monogamous. And, you know, it, and it's like, uh, you know, what are you talking about? And so, so it's just like you go from uh, a study that sh- basically to me says that society is the problem and an organization is the problem and, uh, and a culture of competition and of scarcity is the problem. And they take it from there and, uh, and say, w- deep down, we're evil, essentially. Mm-hmm. And deep down, we hate nice people. Right. That's, that's what, that is almost identical to, to what they're saying. I'm not mincing words no, there. Right. And I just find that to be highly problematic, you know? It's sort of data mining. Yeah. Yeah. And like right there in the middle of the article, it found that cooperative behavior, you know, with, without competition, cooperation increased, right? right. That's what they, without competition, cooperation increased. Um, therefore, humans deep down are evil. Like yeah. what? Like how, how did that, how did that get in there? Who, who wrote it? Uh, who did write it? It doesn't have the author at the top. Oh. Um, uh, that is bizarre that you wouldn't have an author. It's just like uh, it was released last month by Eureka. Anyway. I think that might have been self-preservation. <laughs> I don't think so. I think, okay, so just spoiler alert, the vast majority of these articles are crap. And <laughs> and, I, and I think that people can't detect, even, including these writers. So let's go to psycholog- uh, Psychology Today, okay, which should have slightly more, you know, legitimacy to it. Um, I've read some articles on psychology mm-hmm. today and found them to be actually uh, well-written. Mm-hmm. So this is written by a PhD oh. person, and, it, and it's titled, Harvard Study, Trigger Warnings Might Coddle the Mind. Trigger Warnings May Do More Harm Than Good. So... What's, so, a, what's a trigger warning? So, okay, well, we'll get into this, okay. but... This is another internet thing, in the, and especially in the manosphere. But it's really beyond that. It's more of a MAGA thing of uh, university campuses are coddling, t- you know, the students, safe spaces, trigger warnings. Have you heard about all this stuff? You haven't heard no. about it. You, no. you, might, you must not run in the same internet circles that I do. But this, this is like... Um, what's, fam- the, what's an internet? <laughs> yeah. Famously, um, uh, Jerry Seinfeld 
has come forward saying he 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 won't do college campuses anymore. He won't do stand up at college campuses anymore because of how quote unquote overly sensitive they are oh. to um things that are offensive. You oh. know, like offense you you've heard of like offensive yeah, yeah. culture, offending yeah. culture. Yeah. And uh outrage culture and all that kind of stuff. And so there's this huge narrative right now in the United States and it actually permeates um beyond just Republicans and conservative. It, it's really um, every, every, it seems like everyone I know has this narrative in their head that college campuses are, it's basically an ageism thing. Actually, when I identify, it's basically like, uh, kids today, you know, they're too sensitive and they're, they're little snowflakes and they're, um, narcissistic. They're always on their phones and, they want the world to be perfect. Well, guess what, kid? The world ain't perfect. You know, I just love these like Generation X and Generation Y people acting like they came from like the World War II generation or something. You know, we when we were kids, we had to deal with you know shitty eight bit Nintendo games. You know, grow the fuck up. You yeah. know, it's just like you didn't come from hardship, you asshole. You know what I mean? You grew up in you know during one of the most prosperous. Uh, times in, in the history of the world in the most prosperous country. It's like um, calling kids coddled today is like yeah, right. the coddled calling the coddled, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, but that's the big narrative now is like kids today are, um, you know, so so one of the uh, major um, right-wing things that they'll say about college campuses is that the professors are letting the students get away with um, these safe spaces. And, um, and it like, and there are some famous stories where like some controversial figure, like a Republican, um, you know, leaning person will be giving a talk about this or that. And the students will protest and make it so that the university has to uh, disinvite the person and say like, Oh, due to conflict on our campus, you no longer can speak on our campus or when they show up, there's like a huge protest and a big rigmarole or something. Yeah. And what, you know, these Republicans or conservative people will claim is like, um, these kids, um, believe that, uh, shutting down free speech or, um, shutting themselves off from other ideas, um, will create like this echo chamber for them, you know, and there's some legitimate, um, kind of uh criticism that you could say to that but sure but what's your sense so now that i've sort of downloaded this to you what what do you think about all this kind of stuff it's like a pot calling the kettle black yeah how you're so? exercising your right to free speech when you say you don't want to hear my free speech well you know like yeah of course i am right yeah Right, so this article is primarily about trigger warning so you you don't have any No, i don't know what that term is. Okay. So it began with PTSD. So, oh. you know, when someone has PTSD, oh. I mean, in your DBT classes, so you you say to the group, we're not going to talk about uh, cutting. Yeah, right. Or um, you'd, I, you all also in this group say that they can't talk about suicide, right? right? Suicidal yeah. thoughts. Yeah. Because it triggers them. It can be contagious. Tell me more about that. So, uh, actually, this happened when I was young and foolish. Um, I didn't understand that rule and so didn't um, enforce it properly. And somebody talked in detail about uh, self-harm behavior that they did, a non-lethal self-harm behavior that they did to, you know, regulate themselves. And 
the next week, my client told me that she um, mimicked the behavior. So the idea of, in DBT land, they say, you can talk about it, but you have to call it target behavior and you have to be you know, nonspecific. You can't say cutting or burning or whatever it is, but you can say I had an urge to do a target behavior or I, I did a target behavior, but I can't talk about why, what I did in detail, in any kind of detail, um, because it's contagious. That's the only reason. Is that coddling them? No, it's like we want to go up the mountain, so let's not go down the mountain while we're trying to do that. Is it uh, preventing them from getting better by, by allowing them to deny the truth? No, it's being smart Yeah, with the truth. Right. Yeah. So evidence shows that when you do this uh, model and you have this rule, that uh, in, in addition to all the other things you do, the 99 yeah. other things you do, sure, right. it helps people to recover yes. uh, to a point where they don't have as much target behaviors right. or urges. Now, now, let's be clear that this is what's done in a class, in a group. In individual counseling, you end up talking about this in great detail because that's not a place where other people are going to be triggered. Right. So it's not like, oh, we don't talk about that. Right. No, we talk about it right. just properly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so similar to that or identical to that, there were times when in the middle. So say someone was raped. Oh, yeah. Uh, recently or repeatedly and they had PTSD. Right. Now, you can be raped and not have PTSD, but sure. say you're raped, you have PTSD, and this is, you know, 10 years later, and whenever you have anything that reminds you of the rape, um, you have a visceral reaction. Right. Or you were in war, and you saw your friend's head get blown off oh, yeah. when he was standing right next to you, um, and... Uh, so you have PTSD about, you may develop PTSD about that. And sure. when you do, then um, when you have, when you hear a loud bang or you smell dust right. or, or you see a movie about war or you see a movie where someone's head gets blown off or something. Right. Um, or you see a picture of that friend or I don't know, or you hear a recording of that friend or see you know, right. it. T- for people who don't have PTSD, let me explain. Um, when that happens, the, the body takes over. It has nothing to do with your conscious mind. It's like, um, uh, it's a similar kind of reaction that if I were to strangle somebody <laughs> or uh, put them in a room without any oxygen or something, you're, you, you have a physical reaction to that that can look psychological, right? Like if I, um, you know, if I strangle somebody they're going to freak out. They're going to start punching me in the face. They're going to want to get out of the room. They're going to want to rip my hands. You know, there's going to be behaviors, right? Well, it's the same thing when, when you have a trigger like this, uh, you're in, so for instance, you're in a college class and the prevent and the professor without any warning just decides to show a, a clip from saving private Ryan, you know, the, the opening couple scenes or oh, something. Yeah. Right. And the veterans in the room, some of them are go- who have been through combat, some of them are going to have PTSD. And, they're, and imagine that you're in a classroom of 500 people, you're in the middle of the row, you know, like three rows back, and you can't get out very easily. And you have to sit there and watch this, this scene. And, all, and your body goes through this, this physiological reaction where you panic and you might even dissociate, but at the very least, you're extremely distressed. Um, and it's not just like, for people who don't have never been through this, it's hard to understand. Like, 
for people who have never been through an event like this, think about the most nervous or the most scared you've ever been and times that by like 50 or something. It is like beyond just fear. You know, there, there's fear like, ooh, I'm afraid of heights. Uh, if you're just like, you know, normally afraid of heights or, ooh, that horror movie was scary to me. Okay. That is, that is nothing compared to the physiological reaction that, that people, people, there are many people who would rather die then go through another event like that. It's so horrible. And it lasts for months. Like you can have an, a triggering event like that and your brain and body can be um, off kilter and in a state of severe suffering and distress f- for days, weeks, months for, from one event of having to sit through a class when a movie. Sh- so the same goes for if you were raped you're in the middle of the row, and you're just going to – it's a class about um, advertising or something. And you're, ta- you're, you're a marketing student, and you, you show up to class, and you think you're going to learn about how advertising is working. And this – the professor decides to show you um, a commercial that was made in Denmark that is uh, targeted to reduce um, or to raise awareness about sexual assault. And in that commercial – there is an explicit sexual assault on a woman. Let's just say it's the exact kind of sexual assault you went through as a woman. Same as the vet, your body is going to have a reaction that if you have PTSD and if it reminds you sufficiently of the event and you are going to freak out and you're not going to come back to class because, so that's the other thing is like what events, like what these triggering events do to people is it, it makes their body not trust the world. And so they end up holding themselves up in their, in their rooms for the rest of their lives. Cause they're like, there's a, if I step outside my door, I can't trust society not to trigger me. I can't trust society yeah. to not warn me, by the way, there's going to be this clip coming up. So, so what smart people uh, did, I don't, I don't know exactly where it came from uh, precisely, but there was this movement around like, Hey, how about we just throw up a trigger warning at, at the beginning of class? Or better yet, it's on the syllabus before they even get to class. And you just say something like, by the way, today, in my, you know, if I was a professor, I'd say, by the way, today, we're going to be showing an explicit scene about rape. And so if, if, if that troubles you, just don't come to class. It's fine. Or don't come to the first half hour. Show up half hour late. No big deal. You know what I mean? I'd, it's a bummer that you can't be there to learn from that segment, but... Um, but I don't want you to be thrown into a physiological reaction of horribleness that will, one, harm you and make you suffer, and two, might throw you into a situation where you can't um, come to class anymore because you don't trust the university to, to at least not harm you in this way. That's all a trigger warning is. Oh, got it. Or uh, the most innocuous one is the students are filing into class, and you just you just at the beginning of class, you just say, we're going to do this. If anyone wants to leave right now, you can. Now that's a little bit more sketchy because you have to out yourself as you're yeah. walking out. So high demand, right? But at least it's some, you know, some. It's like fuck it. I don't care if I'm embarrassed. I'm getting out of here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's what a trigger warning is. Now that is ethical. That is right. It's moral. It's I hope understandable. Unless you're a sociopath, that that should happen. If you now. I don't fault society for not understanding PTSD, but um, because for most people, it's like, well, you know, why? Why yeah. would a movie clip 
um, you know, I, you know, what from their perspective. So, so fast forward, you know, in time and culture, and trigger warnings become. It's so. <laughs> The amount of people on the internet that understand trigger warnings as opposed to the amount of people who understand actual PTSD physiological reactions, you know, is uh, there's a big difference. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of people on the internet. It's like, oh, trigger warnings. So, so what trigger warnings became to, to many people interpreting this was that it was coddling, coddling people. Got it. And it, and it became not an issue of rape scenes or scenes of war or violence that might trigger PTSD and more, a, uh, a, th- a thing that s- s- the other thing I'll say is that some people were misusing the term trigger warning on our side of the fence. Yeah. yeah. So they would say like, um, I don't like Republicans. I need a trigger warning before I, before. So now if you have actual PTSD with Republicans, which could happen, it could happen. Um, then great. But yeah. I'm guessing you just really hate Republicans, you know what I mean? Right. Or you just really hate Donald Trump or something, and you don't know what to do with those feelings of anger, and then you say, I need a trigger warning for that. That might be a way to express anger. What? To uh, perhaps misuse the term, um, this is a way of me protesting. This could be, if I don't have PTSD, this could be a way of me protesting against something I don't like. Right. Which is fine to protest. Sure, go for it. But don't use the term trigger warning. No, it, it, it affects the people who really need that. Right. Oh, it's sort of like people who use the, the comfort animals when they oh, don't really need it. Yeah. And they just like traveling with their dog. Yeah. And there are people who legitimately need that. And there are people who are bastardizing it. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. So, so but from my estimation, and there's no way to know, this is anecdotal. Sure. Those incidences were not very frequent compared to the legitimate uses of trigger warning. What you're saying is that people attack the use of that, the good use of that, because you know they have their own agenda or something. Right. Oh, because okay. Well, one, because they don't understand PTSD, right. and they have a general ageist notion that college students are wussies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. And a bunch of privileged little elitist yeah. assholes. You know what I mean? Right. So, Psychology Today has this article, and it says, uh, Harvard study, trigger warnings might coddle the mind. Oh, So, does that make sense more to you now? We're already off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, let me read this paragraph. Trigger warnings aren't just bad for trauma survivors and people who suffer from PTSD. Um, Oh, trigger warnings aren't aren't just bad for... Okay. According to the Harvard study... For people who have not experienced trauma, trigger warnings seem to decrease the belief. No, no, this is not the section I wanted to read. Um, okay. Um, where am I here? Essential for trauma survivors to go through life constantly being warned. Um, oh, I can't remember. What, where was the quote here? Oh, okay. Here we go. Harvard psychology professor and PTSD expert, Dr. Richard McNally, uh, explain in 2016 essay in the New York Times that, quote, severe emotional reactions triggered by course material are a signal that students need to prioritize their mental health and obtain evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapies that will help them overcome PTSD. Oh. That makes sense to you, right? Sure. Okay, so I just want to read this out loud again because the next sentence basically doesn't understand the sentence that they just wrote. <laughs> okay. So, 
Severe emotional reactions triggered by course material are a signal that students need to get help. Yeah. Makes sense, right? Sure. That's actually a, a wonderful statement. That's a great that statement. If, if a student came to me and said, I just saw something in class today and it really stressed me out, um, I would say that's a, that's a signal that you might have PTSD and you should get help for that yeah. because you are suffering and you deserve to be treated, you know, and there's, and I'll tell you out there, PTSD treatment is one of the most um, efficient, it's, we can cure PTSD in people. Like I, I've, I've literally cured PTSD in people. You have to, oh, yeah. it, it, it can be done. It's one of the few things that can actually like respond very well because it's so behavioral, you know, and physiological that it's just a matter of habituation. It's also now, very fast. It can be, yeah. Um, the trick is, is that for some people, it's so scary to even oh, begin yeah. exposure, right? Um, or the trauma is so pervasive that it takes years to kind of slowly get there, yeah. or they're they've been traumatized by relationships and relation, and they need to engage in a relationship to be to begin exposure, or the relationship is the exposure. Sure. So, so complex PTSD is the treatment is still very similar, but it takes longer. Yeah. And it's probably more new, su- I don't know, subtle. Does that sound like? Totally. Yeah. 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 If you have PTSD from a car crash and doesn't involve oh, yeah. any complexity, then um, habituating yourself to car crashes or, you know, is um, less uh, nuanced. Yeah. Um, okay. So they say Harvard expert says severe emotional reactions, you know, as being triggered by something in a course is a indication that you need help. Um, and then. Then the next sentence. Mm -hmm. So this is psychology today, right? It's not just some blogger. In other words, severe emotional reactions are not an indication that professors or others should warn students in advance. How did... Okay. What? (laughs) Yeah. So I just want to read the sentence as... I'm not going to paraphrase it. Severe... This is what the expert said. Severe emotional reactions triggered by course material are a signal that students need to prioritize their mental health and obtain evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapies that will help them overcome PTSD. Unquote. The next sentence. In other words, severe emotional reactions are not an indication that professors or others should warn students in advance. That has nothing to... It's apples and oranges. Apples and oranges. It's really apples and stupid oranges is what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um... I mean, in other words, yeah, you know, no, no, no. You have just either you can't. Re- the, this author wrote the sentence before they, this. They published that. Yes. Who? Where's the editor? It's in the next sentence. Constantly warning people with PTSD about potential triggers could potentially even interfere with their recovery. Okay, no. where'd you get that? And then here comes the here comes here comes the next. You know. So this is all the same paragraph, yeah. okay? As Lakianoff and Haight point out in their newest book, The Coddling of the American Mind, Uh-oh. the avoidance of triggers is not a treatment for PTSD. Well, right. It is a classic symptom of it. Well, right. Um, in fact, Dr. McNally, uh, thera- according to Dr. McNally, therapies that promote recovery from PTSD involve gradual systematic exposure to traumatic memories until the capacity of those memories to trigger distress uh, diminishes. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. W- w- but 
sudden fucking exposure in class when you're not ready for yeah. it and you have no actual therapy around you to help you uh, integrate and recover and habituate is actually going to spike one's distress and compound the PTSD. Now, they were not just raped on a date when they were 16, but now they have been essentially raped in class by being exposed to a rape on the screen. And now you and society and this author of psychology today are participating in the continuing rape and violence against human beings. Crazy. I mean, that's just stupid. That's just stupid. That's somebody pushing an agenda, not somebody actually interested in welfare. Yeah. Ageism. Because the thing is, is they mean to even say it. It's got to be systematic. Yeah. Involve gradual, gradual systemic exposure to memories uh, to trigger, dist- you know, to, yeah. to help someone have the distress diminished. Right. In, this is all one paragraph. What's, one of the things that's missing is that um, when people are in treatment for PTSD, they're in treatment because they have an interest in getting, getting better. And so they're volunteering and participating. But if you just show up in a class, you're not volunteering or participating. You're just kind of along for the ride that the professors, you know, wanting to whatever, whatever yeah. they're doing. Now, if a professor said, I come to my class if you have trauma around rape and I will gradually expose you to the rape, uh, to rape stimuli to help you recover from your PTSD. Um, uh, it would still be a terrible model oh, because yeah. no one would be there. But no. But at least people yeah. would know their sign. You know, sure. There's this notion of like, um, of now. I will say there is a form of therapy called um, uh, it's an exposure type. It's um, not the prolonged, but it's um, I can't remember the term in behaviorism, but it's like yeah. a sudden exposure. Oh, it's oh, over flooding? flooding. Yeah, yeah, and. That can work, but yeah. can also really not work. <laughs> well, that that but that all you know, a person volunteers for that, right? That's so the whole point. That's the point. Yeah, it's like according to this article, and according to a lot of people in our society, um, it's who I I guess they they really just don't understand PTSD, right? It's like this notion. There's I guess you know it, I I find that a lot of these this super paternal. You know, it's just like. You have a every yeah. every parent has been through a situation where their kid is whining about something, <laughs> and 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 they're applying it to this. They think that PTSD sufferers are whining. You know, it's like because because I think they associate mental health awareness with liberalism and right. with just a political view you just don't like, or yeah. or being childish or something. Right. Um, uh, and that's why I bring in the vets because it's like if you're a Republican, I you're likely to uh, sympathize with veterans, you know, more so, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, not to denigrate like um, Republicans who have uh, morals and can sift through the rhetoric. I mean, people on both sides of the aisle, honestly, um, are guilty of uh, wrongheadedness for sure. Oh, sure. Um, but anyway. So everyone's been through as a parent, you know, your daughter is like, ew, spaghetti is gross. And like, as a parent, you're like, oh my God, like, 
okay, by implication, this kid's not going to eat their spaghetti because they're grossed out by it. They've had spaghetti hundreds of times before. The kid is in a bad mood and is going through the terrible fives or whatever and is just being a dick to me right now. If I give in, I have to throw away perfectly good food. They're going to be hungry later, and guess what? They're going to ask for ice cream. I've been through this every fucking night. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> You're not actually grossed out by the spaghetti kid. Eat the spaghetti. Yeah. Eat it. I don't want to. It's gross. Look at it. It's gross. Get over it, kid. Eat the fucking spaghetti, you know. Power like, struggle. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, every parent has been through that. Sure. And that's what they're because they're so stupid yeah, they can't yeah. like overcome their simplistic way of looking right. at the world that they see people suffering from legitimate physiological yeah. PTSD as like right. complaining little kids. That's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's take a break. When we get back, let's be disgusted with some more articles. What do you say? <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right, we're back from the break. Uh, if you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Um, part of being a patron of the podcast, is if you're a $20 patron, I will physically uh, wrap a mug that I'm holding in front of me right now and and mail it to you. You have to be in... Uh, North America, if you're in Great Britain or something, it costs like $150 or something to, to mail a mug um, across the ocean, which makes sense. Well, will you send them a picture of the mug? Um, I'll send you some stickers. How about that for <laughs> sure? Because that's actually not, not so bad. But the, every once in a while, I update the mug. And honestly, this is, this is a really great mug. It has the best handle because all four fingers, you know, have you ever had a oh, yeah. coffee mug oh, yeah. where only two fingers fit? Right. It's like, it hurts. Why would that, you know, it'd be like having a, a suitcase that was like, you know, just big, you know, the handle just big enough for two fingers. It's like right. this, And it's tall, so it can fit lots of, uh, lots of coffee in this thing. Um, and beer. Uh, and I can't vouch for this, but I'm pretty sure this mug keeps your uh, coffee warm for 24 hours. That's, <laughs> that's, what, I'll, that's what I'll say. Um, <laughs> But I updated the mug, and I put Bob's face on it. Oh, And well. so I thought I would give Bob, right oh. here on the podcast, uh, the new mug. I think I was drunk in this picture. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see the picture. It remind me, it, uh, that was your birthday party uh, in your back. Oh, no, no, that was a Christmas party. That was one of the Christmas parties. Oh, I the, think. Michael and Beth, the Michael and Beth Christmas party. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They call it the Quanchanimous party. Yeah. It is the Kwanzaa Hanukkah Christmas party. Right. Because there are people of all faiths. And, that, and none. And none. And, and there have been, uh, we've had that party uh, going on 21 years now or something, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I haven't been to most of them. I think yeah. you have. But I was there in the beginning. I remember. Um, in fact, I think they were the first people who introduced me to the idea of white elephant. Like I, oh yeah, like I had never heard of white elephant. Um, in 1997, I was like, white elephant, what is this? And back then, it was just like six people <laughs> that was doing the white That's elephant, right. so it didn't take yeah. very long. Yeah, but now it's become a whole it's like 35 whole thing. people. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah if you're a hundred dollar patron to the podcast, you actually might get an invitation to the party. So, you know, <laughs> just saying. Okay. So let's read another article here. Thanks for the mug. It's really cool. Sure. 
Um, actually, I thought we would do a personality test. What oh. Do you, what do you say? I think I have one. Uh, <laughs> a personality, I mean. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so let's both answer these questions, but I'm, I'm going to tabulate for you because I think – so this is another um, – uh, this is on the Pearson or no Psych Central website, which is kind of like supposed to be a little step up from Psychology Today. Okay, but anyway, what so are we assessing? Um, personality, but it's only t- oh, it's a big five. So do you know the big five? Big the so personality among psychologists, they don't regard like Myers Briggs or other kinds of personality because it's really really hard to define personality and right. it's also hard to. Um, find constructs that actually hold up, you know, because it's one thing to, to call someone like, oh, you're type A. For example, type right. A is something that's often thrown out. Right. And it's like, um, when you actually just, when you actually ask people what type A means, they, of, they often don't know what psychologists mean by type A. And two, the, the, the personality um, characteristics that they describe as like, oh, because, by definition, if you have a type A personality, you would have a type B or a, or or something outside of type A. Right. You know, you are born with dark skin or you're born with light skin or, or there's a spectrum or something. You know, there's a way to kind of right. differentiate between people. Well, when, it, when sometimes culture will think that a certain personality uh, char- characteristic or criteria will fit together when in fact... They don't really, yeah. you know, it'd be like saying, um, in terms of physicality, it'd be like saying people with dark skin are tall right. or something, you yeah. know, oh, you know, those tall, dark, you know, it's like, it's like those things actually don't correlate. They're you know independent. I mean? There's tall and short. Anyway, yeah. I'm not really describing it very well, but uh, big five is the uh, five personality traits spectrums that psychologists over time have actually agreed on as um, holding water um, in terms of universality well and 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 being um, consistent across cultures with right. regards to uh, the measures actually measure something and can predict behavior that's always oh. the big thing it's like when you measure something when you measure someone's personality can you predict behavior in the future or can you predict reactions to things in the future you know Makes what I mean? sense. right so um, anyway, so this is a very quick, you know, big five personality inventories will be, you know, hundreds of questions. This has 10, so I'm sure it's not very accurate. But anyway, so Bob. Yes. Uh, this is all on like agree to disagree from strongly, moderately, a little, neither, you know, da, da, da. Are they numbers? No. Okay. But yeah. Okay. So I see myself as extroverted and enthusiastic. Do you agree or disagree with that? Disagree. Uh, how disagree? Strong, moderate, little. Moderate. Okay. I see myself critical and quarrelsome. Disagree. Disagree. Or... Moderate. Moderate. I see myself as dependable and self-disciplined. Agree. A little, moderate, strongly. Dependable and self-disciplined? Yeah. Uh, moderate. Okay. I see myself as anxious and easily upset. Disagree or agree? Disagree. A little, moderately, or strongly? Boy, my first hit was a little, but that doesn't even sound like me. Read it again. I see myself as anxious and easily upset. Oh, I hate these. It's like, it depends. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay, so moderate. Okay. I see myself as open to new experiences and I'm complex. 
you know, the problem with these questions is they there's they do two, two there's two yeah. things, and they don't. Well, I'm a, I'm actually reading them more grammatically correct, but the way this is written is yeah. I see myself as open to new experiences, comma complex. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I see myself as open to new experiences complex <laughs> like, like i have an open to new sp- experiences complex yeah i got it yeah um i guess agree a little okay i see myself as reserved quiet disagree or agree mm, disagree a little i see myself as sympathetic warm agree a lot strongly yeah i see myself as disorganized careless no, disagree a lot, strongly. I see myself as calm, emotionally stable. Oh, well, what day is it? Um, <laughs> uh, disagree a little. Okay. I see myself as conventional, uncreative. Disagree a lot, strongly. Okay. Score my short personality. Okay. So, you are... Uh, very agreeable. Mm. So the the five the big five are extroversion, uh, agree you know as opposed to introversion. introversion. Yeah. Agreeable versus di- disagreeable. Mm. Conscientiousness, emotional stability, and open to experiences. Okay, that, that's the big five. All right. So you are slightly not extroverted. Yeah. You are very agreeable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what. You're a 6.5 on agreeable, and I think it's out of 7, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe out of 10. Not sure. Um, No, I think it's out of 7. So you're extremely agreeable, according Mm -hmm. to this 10 question inventory. I agree. You're extremely conscientious. Mm -hmm. Uh, Conscientious is um, you greatly value self-discipline, acting dutifully, and aiming for achievement. Yeah, that's that's probably true. You have a preference for planned rather than spontaneous behavior. Sometimes. A lot of the time. I like spontaneity when it's planned, yeah. <laughs> you seek to avoid trouble and achieve high levels of success through purposeful planning and persistence. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Uh, you are positively regarded by others as intelligent and reliable. That's true. Lies. Those are true. I consider you to be very intelligent and very reliable. For example, when we schedule these podcasts, like sometimes months in advance, yeah. we'll be like, okay, um, how about this Saturday? Because you come over on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, how about this Saturday? And you're like, ah, and then we're like, oh, I'm out of town, I'm out of town. And then we're like, okay, three months from now on Saturday, you'll come at 11. And like, boom, you're there at 11. Um, sometimes, however, others may see you as compulsive, perfectionistic, or a workaholic. Ooh, you know me pretty well. What do you think? <laughs> I don't know if I know you that well. Yeah, you know Certainly, well. well. I think you know me as well as anybody except maybe Colleen. Yeah. Um, A workaholic. I don't think you're a workaholic. Um, not that. Um, I mean, I think you have veins of perfectionism. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, totally. What am I talking about? You wrote an entire novel... <laughs> and a pop-up book, by the way. <laughs> a legit pop-up book and a legit novel. And uh, against everyone's coaching, including legit editors, mm-hmm. you have refused to publish it out of, I believe, perfectionism. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's also not done. <laughs> what else would a perfectionist say? What is this also says I'm compulsive? 
Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's true? Um, you have a compulsive uh, vulnerability yeah. that you've, um, you know, you manage pretty well. Oh, okay. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it says you're sort of Midland emotionally stable. <laughs> Meaning yeah. that you have, you know, you're not like, um, I don't know, you're, I don't know how this works out in terms of averages, but right. um, but you, you're you're like somewhat emotionally stable, I think is what it means, and you're you're pretty open to new, to experiences, which I think is true as well. Oh. Um, you know, you're the sort of person who likes to meet new people and do new things, and I mean, maybe not in your current lifestyle, but that's you, true. You have that capacity. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, being on the podcast, I think, is you know some some indication of open because you never know what I'm going to do to you. When That's you true. Down. Colleen says to me this morning, "What are you guys talking about?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I never know." <laughs> uh, let's do just one more personality test. Okay. Um, this is called Doctor Phil's personality test. Oh well, you know then. Yeah. So again, Psych Central supposed to. I don't know how legit. I I, I sometimes find good Psych Central articles, but um, anyway, so. I just find this one to be just kind of funny. It's it's only 10 questions. When do you feel your best? In the morning, during the afternoon and early evening, or late at night? Night. Uh, you usually walk fairly fast with long steps, fairly fast with small steps, less fast head up, looking the world in the face, less fast head down, or very slowly? Less fast head down. Less fast head down. When talking to... Do you watch Arrested Development? I have. Uh, uh, hair up, glasses off. G- glasses on, glasses on, hair up. Do you remember that scene uh-uh. where Job is in the copy room with um, the girl who always shows her boobs all the time? <laughs> no. You don't remember that? Uh-uh. Say goodbye to these, Michael. Anyway. Um, man, I, so, you know, they recently came out with season five. Right. Did you watch it? No. And I just did not like it oh yeah like so so going back to the day like early aughts when arrested development first came out i was just infatuated with the show back in a time when it 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 was like didn't have very good ratings and not a lot of people watched it and and i loved it and um was so bummed when that when it was taken off the air then netflix like 10 years later had season four right and I liked it, you know, and I was like, ah, oh, it's not as good as the original, but I was like, yeah, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, then this recent bout, what they did was they took season four and uh, re-edited it to make it better. Did you watch season four no. when it came out? So season four had all these problems because um, they, all these people were big stars now. You know, you had Michael Sarah, you had um, Jason, Jason Bateman. Bateman. Uh, you had the guy um, Jeffrey Tambor. The, Jeffrey Tambor. Um, you had just just big names, right. and so Cross, Jessica Walter, right. right? And so they uh, couldn't. So originally, uh, David, yeah, David Cross. Originally, all the people were kind of no names to some extent. Yeah, um, Jason Bateman, I don't think had done anything around that time much at all. Uh-huh. Like, and so. In order to make it budgetarily possible, what they did was they filmed when people were available. And so what that meant was the production 
uh, of the show, there was very few moments where more than one or two stars were in a scene. And so I think they would just take like a couple days and shoot like a lot of scenes with one person. And so a lot of the stories are these kind of like isolated stories about one or two people. And then they sort of had to cleverly interweave them into a few scenes where they're all there. You know, there's like one or two days where all the stars are on set doing something. Um, and there were even times where it was obviously green screened, like where um, uh, the Fonzie, you know, um, was uh, green screened into a scene. Can you imagine like when, it, when you see that, you know, they, they obviously took a, a screen grab of a background of the scene they had shot and said, and then they just green screened it. It just looks so dumb. But anyway, so people were upset about that. And so they, um, and the whole season was something like 10 episodes and each, all 10 episodes took place at the kind of the same timeline. And so each episode was like a flashback to the, you know, and it was like so confusing. Um, whereas the original Arrested Development, each episode was kind of like its own little unit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like it was like a curb your enthusiasm, you know, like it began with a premise and then it wrapped up. And yeah. there were themes across the episodes for sure. Sure. But y- y- it w- you could watch one episode on season two and not know much about the storyline and still be entertained. Right. Whereas like the season four Arrested Development, it was like if you just watched episode five, you'd be like, what in the world is happening? Right. So then, but I liked it. And then they came out with, and then like five years later or something, they came out with season five, right? So in preparation for that, I went back for fun and watched seasons one through three and, and then decided to watch the remix of four and then five. I was like, this is going to be a arrested development month for me. I'm going to like really go for it. And what I found was with some distance, season one and two are hilarious. Even season three of the original series is not that funny. Oh, wow. It's the season with... Um, with uh, Charlize Theron. Do you remember that season? No, I She's like a it. British. It's kind of, and there's some problematic things in that, in that season too. Cause so Charlize Theron plays, um, uh, you know, someone with developmental, she's developmentally disabled. Wow. She, she is, uh, you know, she essentially, according to the show, has the mentality of like a five-year-old, but, uh, Jason Bateman's character, um, you know, um, Michael Bluth doesn't realize that and is dating her, thinking that she's just this quirky, fun, um, ironic person. And that's kind of dark. It's pretty dark. You know? <laughs> yeah. And and not funny also. It's just yeah. like the third. So, so then I'm already like, oh, season three, it's not that funny. Yeah. And then I get to season four with the remix, and I'm like, man, this is... I, I don't even think I can sit through this. So then I was like, uh, I've already seen season four, which, so I'll just skip to season five. Got like one and a half episodes in season five and was like, this is a slog. Yeah. Like, I don't think this is very funny. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems is Michael Sarah's character, uh, George Michael Bluth, in the original series was hilarious, like a real specific, very innocent, happy kid. Seasons four and five, he's, you know, he's older now. He's not a teenager anymore. He's like 30 years old now. 
And the way they write his character is he's he's like a dark asshole kind of a thing, you know? And and I don't know if that's like his sort of thing, like he just doesn't want to play nice people anymore or something. Yeah. Um and then of course there were all the political problems with Tambor having sure. sexually harassed people on on set and then Jason Bateman and I think David Cross, David Cross right. defending Tambor yeah. in some ways. Um, so that sort of put a pall on the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty disappointed. And I don't care if there's a season six. <laughs> um, so anyway, but if you're interested uh, in commenting, let me know. Uh, contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Um, this was the episode in which I just talked about arrest development for 15 minutes. Okay. Getting back to your personality. So I asked you, when do you feel your best late at night? Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I, I feel like that's me too, but that's changing. Yeah. Right. For me as I get older, what I feel like, well, I feel like it can be in the morning for me now. Yeah. Sometimes. Right. But back in the day, for sure, man, like I knew my, I was at my cognitive best at like 11 at night. Uh, national fact hour. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you usually walk less fast and head down. Head down, yeah. That seems interesting to me. You seem you seem like a personality of a fast walker, uh-huh. but you're not. You're a, you're a slow walker. I think I'm kind of slow walker. Yeah, I'm a fast walker. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you are. I uh, and I guess and I take long steps. Yeah, um, yeah. But you're less fast head down. What do you mean head down? Like just like I don't want to look at people in the eye. I I like I'm thinking about me going to the grocery store. I just look at the shit on the walls and stuff. I don't even Yeah. <laughs> uh okay, when talking to people, you stand with your arms folded, you have your hands clasped, you have one or both of your hands on your hips, you touch or push the person to whom you are talking. <laughs> mm-hmm. You play with your ear or hair, touch your chin or smooth your hair. Which one are you? So stand with your arms folded, no. hands clasped. Sometimes. Have one or both of your hands at your hips. No, never. Touch or push the person with whom you're talking. That's probably most likely. Or play with your hair. No, I don't play with my hair. Okay, well, touch the person you're talking to. Yeah. Uh, when relaxing, I see, what am I? I'm yeah, prob- what are you? I'm, I'm probably that person, too. Yeah. Um, although I do put my hands on my hips a lot. Like I find that it's very com- comfortable. I find myself feel- thinking I'm like a a cowboy because I'll put my thumbs in my belt. Uh-huh. It looks ridiculous, but it's comfortable. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when relaxing, you sit with <laughs> you sit with your knees bent, with your legs neatly side by side. No, neither well, one of us are like that. Like, so so like like this. Oh no no. So when relaxing. You sit very, very posture-esque. Oh, definitely. Um, when relaxing, you sit with your legs crossed. Mm-hmm. When relaxing, you sit with your legs stretched out or straight. Oh, that's me. Uh-huh. Uh, when relaxing, you sit with one leg curled under you. Oh, that's me too. I do that too. Um, I'm very fidgety. I'm a very fidgety sitter. Right. I have noticed that. I noticed that a long time ago. about Because as a therapist, I sit for an hour at a time. Right. Uh, in the same chair talking to someone. And I noticed that 99% of my clients will sit down in one position and never move. They just sit there and they talk and they listen. <laughs> For me, every 
every 30 seconds I'm shifting in my, in my chair. It's like, I can't get comfortable. Just sit. Like if I torture for me, if the Taliban caught me would be making me sit in one spot, regardless of what position that would be. I'd just be slowly going insane because I'd have to fidget. So no Buddhist meditation for you. No. What about you? Like, so are you a, are you a fidgeter? I, yeah, I move, but I think if I'm sitting and relaxing, well, it's funny. Colleen said to me, you sit, if you sit down, you sit like, like I'm sitting like this, not, not legs together, but I sit like this. Yeah. Okay. Kind I of a, kind of a slight man spreader. Yeah. A slight man spreader. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I, I didn't know that about myself. I, you know, I thought I'd just stick my legs up on whatever's in front of me. If I could have my way, yeah. I would I would recline with my legs up every time. And <laughs> there's a and over time I just started doing that at work, you know, I would um I would just put my feet up on my desk and talk to people. I'd take my shoes off and I'd put my feet up. And after a while, I realized that that wasn't normal. <laughs> <laughs> to me it seemed totally normal because I don't know, it just felt normal. Yeah. It certainly felt comfortable. Right. Um, I mean, I would take naps like that. I would sit in my office chair, sure. I'd take my shoes off, put my feet up on my desk, and just sort of hang my head and fall asleep. Absolutely. And uh, But eventually, like, a student would be, like, a little braver later on into the program. They'd be like, yeah, I remember the first time I met you in your office, and you just, like, took your shoes off, which I found to be, like, really unprofessional, and then you put your feet up on your desk mm-hmm. when you were talking to me mm-hmm. with your socks, you know? Yeah. And and. I think it's a Japanese thing. Like, it's very normal for Japanese people to be, it's, you know, you walk into a Japanese house, you take your shoes take off. Take your shoes off. You walk into a Japanese restaurant, you take your shoes off. Right. Like, you know, in, in some restaurants with tatami. You don't ever step uh, with your shoes on a tatami mat. And and a lot of houses are like, you know, yeah. at least traditionally, there's a lot of, you know, in Japan, they don't measure their houses by square meter or square foot or anything you know in the united states it's like everything's like well how many square foot like sure how many square foot is your house bob it's uh 1200 and change right so the fact that you just know that right. off the top of your head like right. 1200 you know 1230 some people know down to the you know the single digit right. and uh whereas in japan it's all on tatami mat so people will say you know my apartment is nine tatami mats Wow. Yeah. Are and they, and it'll they, fit exactly nine tatami mats. You know what I mean? They're standard sizes? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because th- it's designed to like, there's yeah. a, a standard, and tatami mats are like, I'm going to say like six by three or something. Uh-huh. They could be eight by four. I'm not sure. But. Uh, That's cool. Isn't that funny? Yeah. It's like so traditional, you know? Right. Uh, okay. So are you a legs crossed, legs stretched out, or leg curled underneath you? Uh, I guess stretched out. Stretched out. Yeah. Okay. That's what I am too. When someone really amuses you, you react with a big appreciative laugh. That's definitely you. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to mark that now. The other sure. the other ones are a laugh, but not a loud one. A quiet chuckle. A sheepish smile. No, you're you're one of the biggest appreciative laughers I've ever met. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, when you go to a party, it's, maybe that's part of your openness to experience part. Like you just, you like to experience life, you know. <laughs> when you go to a party or a social gathering, you make a loud entrance so that everyone notices you. I'm going to mark that for you right there. <laughs> uh, make a quiet entrance looking around for someone you know. 
make the quietest entrance trying to stay unnoticed. Yeah, you're definitely on the yeah. make a loud entrance. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're not bad. You're yeah, just yeah. Uh, a jovial, yeah. self-deprecating person. <laughs> uh, you're working very hard, concentrating hard, and you're interrupted. You welcome a break or you feel extremely irritated by the interruption or you vary between these two extremes, between welcoming the break and feeling extremely irritated. I feel like I can't answer this question for you because I don't know how you do. That's a good question. I It depends. Like at work, I definitely will just go with it. I'll just welcome the break because I figure I'm going to work with that too. Uh, and at home, it depends. Like if I'm talking about something that's deeply personal, I can get irritated. But most of the time I'd say, I just like go with what comes my way. I welcome the break. Yeah, that is consistent with because you're not like a you're not a rigid you're you're not rigid one and two. I think you're self aware enough to know like what's the bigger picture here, right? Um, which of the following colors do you like the most? Oh. Red, orange, black, yellow, light blue. Yellow, light blue is in the same category. Green, dark blue, purple, white, brown, and gray. Green. Green. Okay. I don't know what sort of personality that's supposed to... Dr. Phil's going to get in my head. Yeah. I think for me, it's... um, It used to be purple when I was a kid. And I think I just chose purple because no one else chose purple. I think that's why... Because when you're a kid, like, everyone has a, has a favorite color. There's a personality test right there. Right. <laughs> and then I really loved uh, red and blue because that's what Spider-Man was. Mm-hmm. And I, did, I think I did a fair amount of coloring books with Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man. And then, and then it was definitely light blue. Like, I loved light blue. It went aqua, aqua blue. Nice. Color. Um, now it's like, why would you choose a favorite color? Yeah, it's more like I um, An orange. I think I liked orange for a while. Anyway. When you are in bed at night, in those last few moments before going to sleep, you are stretched out on your back. Stretch out face down in your stomach, on your side, slightly curled, with your arm on, with your head on one arm, with your head under the covers. <laughs> under the covers. <laughs> yes, I'm trying to suffocate myself yes. to sleep. <laughs> How do you sleep is the answer to this question. Uh, on my side. On your side, slightly curled, or with your head on an arm? Slightly curled. Slightly curled. So your, your arms are in front of your body. Yeah. Interesting. Which is bugging my shoulders, but uh, nonetheless, that's how it is. Is it bad for your shoulders? Uh, it bugs them. They, I stretch funny. I think it's actually making my spine curve. Oh. Yeah. I've been getting this ad on Facebook for some reason where it has one of those like um, contraptions that allows you to sleep on your side and the pillow kind of supports your arm going through this like hole. I've never heard of that. It's like a giant sort of weird pillow with various different you'd have to see it but but and it's like a wedge shape and starts at your hip and goes all the way up to your head and it has a hole for your arm that's cool so it relieves that that pressure, pressure. on your arm somehow and it puts the pressure on your on side your side support yeah. there yeah and and then it and it has a little pillow for your head that you and it and the pillow c- comes down from your head and you can kind of cradle it. You can kind of like, um, it's like you're spooning part of the pillow. It's weird. You have to see it, but maybe I you should wonder. buy one of those things. Yeah. It's also supposed to be good for gastric reflux. Do you have reflux? No. I do. You do? Yeah. So it's like sleeping with a little bit of a, you know, keeps the gastric juices in your stomach. In your stomach, yeah. Uh, I sleep, 
I I start off on my side with my I put my arm under my pillow, and so I guess my head is on my arm, but but it's sort of the yeah. pillows in between, right? And then just as I'm falling asleep, I get on my back and then I fall asleep, and I I'm pretty sure I sleep on my back throughout the night. Yeah, I used to sleep. I used to do the same process, but on my stomach. I would start on my stomach until I I would sort of drift off. And then realize I'm on my stomach, and then I'd flip over. I can't ever sleep on my stomach. I don't know how y'all do that. It's like kills my neck. Well, there's a way to sort of uh, use the pillow as I don't know. There was a way I did it, yeah. but um, but yeah, I could only handle it for a little bit of time. But it, I found it to be very relaxing to my spine. Oh. It's part of my fidgeting thing. Is yeah. that if as soon as I lay down, it takes me. It often takes me a little bit to fall asleep. And I, cause, cause I need to fidget in bed. I, th- I don't think I ever drew this connection before that if I just, cause I, if I just logically, I should just start on my back. Right. But oh, yeah. if it takes me longer than three minutes to fall asleep, I'll get fidgety right. and I'll have to move. Yeah. And sometimes that'll happen where I'll start on my side and then I'll go, okay, I think I'm about to fall asleep. You know, you get that feeling where you're kind of falling, yeah. you know? And so I go, okay, get on my back. And then five, ten minutes will go by. I haven't fall asleep. Well, I got to fidget, so now I got to go back to my side, side, or the other side, maybe. Right. And then I got to like wait there for a bit until I drift off. Then I got to get back on my back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, uh, last question: You are often you often dream that you are falling, fighting or struggling, searching for something or somebody, flying or floating. You usually have dreamless sleep. Your dreams are always pleasant. None of the above. I mean, I, everybody has all those dreams at some point. But I have to pick one? Can you read them again? Falling, fighting, struggling, searching, flying, floating, dreamless sleep, or pleasant dreams. Last night, I dreamed... Oh, I dreamed I was coming to your house to do a podcast, honest to God. Oh. Yeah, and your house was next to a church, and I needed a code to get into your house, but the church was open so I could walk down their path to get to your place, which is no place I ever been before. And at some point, I really had to poo. And so <laughs> so I left your front porch or whatever, wherever your door was, and went through the church, you know, little walkway or whatever, out to the sidewalk and down the street to like a public bathroom. And it was sort of like Edmonds Main Street, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Quaint, quaint little yeah. uh, shore town. Yeah. And I almost pooped my pants. Like I was pooping while I was sitting down on the thing and get my pants down all at once. So I'd say searching. I'm going with searching <laughs> on this one. <laughs> you could also say fighting or struggling. <laughs> but yeah, okay, searching for someone. You're searching for me. Man, Freud and I can have a field day with this yeah, dream. Yeah, go for it. There's well, what's your, what's your associations with, with churches? Um, I mean, you have to have some association. Sure, yeah. yeah. We were raised Catholic-ish, sort of. I don't like churches. Um, uh no, no, that's not true. I actually like churches. I don't like priests um, and hierarchy. But the churches themselves are really cool. But they're also sort of boring and tiresome. Uh, and pooping. What, what are your association with having to find a bathroom for... Did you actually have to poop in real life, do you think? Do you... That, right, because it was last night. And I was wondering that myself, but no, I don't think so. Okay. Maybe I had gas. Okay. Yeah, Colleen's been telling me I fart in my sleep these days. Okay. I didn't know that. I think everyone does. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I heard some stat that the average um, person, the average person, farts like thirteen times a day, including while they're sleeping. Oh, and which I find to be a little high, but but first, but regardless, the stat is like because some people will say I haven't farted in months. You know, they'll they'll say stuff like that, and and then I've always been like. Well, it must come out when you're sleeping. Sleeping, then. yeah, right. Yeah. Or there's Michael who farts 13 times an hour. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I used to fart a lot more yeah. than I do now. Right? I, I think my diet is just better. Yeah. And so I, I I can legitimately go for days without knowing if I'm farting or not. Oh, yeah, yeah. Me too, except it's usually like about 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, certainly there are certain. Th- what makes you? What makes you fart? It's the gas. <laughs> uh, I don't know because I I can't seem a rhyme or reason to it. For me, hummus. Oh yeah, that would do it. And garlic. For a while, there was this trend to have pizzas with full garlic cloves. Do you remember that trend? No. It was like in the awful. It was in the aughts. I feel like there was a lot of pizza, which just like. Like thirty full cloves, you know the the sections or whatever yeah, yeah. of cooked garlic, right? And it tasted great because cooked garlic um, can it mellows it, it right? Mellows, it makes yeah, it yeah. kind of like a cooked onion kind right. of thing. And but man, um, you know, soon out and the farts would smell, you know. Well, I guess you know it's like well, a little bit of pesto in the air right now. <laughs> Okay, let's uh, let's let's score your personality. What would Doctor Phil say about yeah, you? Yeah, right. Okay, so you are uh, you scored a forty six. Oh, so there you go. Uh, and you are titled. Your personality is the lively center of attention. I don't know how answering that your favorite color was green. Sure is. Um, Oh, this is a okay. So, so here are the different. Here's the different scoring. So, you have on one of this spectrum, you're the shy warrior, uh-huh. and then you're the careful plotter, and then the, you're the loyal friend, and then you're the lively center of attention, huh. and then you're the natural leader, and you're then you're the vain, self-centered leader. So, I think this is basically a an extroversion scale. So you're like in the middle. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, you've oh. taken a personality quiz for entertainment as far as we can tell there's no scientific backing for this quiz so um <laughs> supposedly dr phil scored 55 which is higher than you on that th- this looks to be an extroversion scale and oprah scored a 38 which is so you're right in the middle of dr phil and oprah okay if dr phil's personality and oprah's personality were to sandwich they would sandwich you you would be the you their know, love child. Yeah. Or th- you would be the third wheel in their 69 situation. <laughs> but, you're, but you scored 46, so I don't know how that makes any sense. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for that weird episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for uh, taking those tests. How do you feel after taking those tests, Rob? I feel, I feel closer to Dr. Phil. <laughs> Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> I like the color green. <laughs> That says so much about personality. Uh, uh, Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. (laughs) 